Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome. I just spoke with Debbie Cohen about her new book, The Earthquake Observers, Disaster Science from Lisbon to Richter, that was published with the University of Chicago Press in 2012. Now, Debbie's book charts the ways that the earthquake emerges as a scientific object throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. She does that by focusing on a number of local contexts that become really important and important in different ways to the emergence of what we eventually um, have come to know as sort of that which we take for granted as indicative of the strength and the importance of an earthquake, the Richter scale. Now, to get to the Richter scale, we start off in really what was for me as a reader very surprising territory. We start out with Kant. We go through Dickens and Twain, Kafka and other writers. We look at the importance of and the differing ways um, of construing the importance of the testimony of lay observers, the testimony of citizens, and the ways that that testimony is recorded and translated in different media and different contexts. Like I said, it's a really surprising story. It's a story that touches on the history of humor. It touches on the history of the human sciences. It touches on literature, on literary metaphor, on instrumentality, on all kinds of things. It's extraordinarily elegantly written, and it's a really good read. So we talked about a lot of this stuff in the course of our conversation, and I hope you enjoy the conversation and also um, eventually read the book. We're here today to talk with Deborah Cohen about her new book, The Earthquake Observers, Disaster Science from Lisbon to Richter. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Debbie, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thanks so much for inviting me, Carla. My pleasure. So, Debbie, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you to the history of science as a field in general? So I was a physics major in college, but I loved literature. I loved to read and write, and I wasn't so fond of working in a lab. And then I happened into a class on history of science, and everything clicked. Um, So I was hooked, really, from my junior year on. So the book itself um, that we're talking about today chronicles the way earthquake as a disaster both emerged and then receded as a scientific object throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. So can you situate this within the broader trajectory of your work for us? How did you come to this topic in particular, given what you had worked on before? Mm. So I've always been interested in... um contextualizing science um, in the lives of scientists and how um, their lived experiences um, impacts knowledge making. Um, My first book was about um, uncertainty, a theme of uncertainty and its relationship to politics and family life in Vienna in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, And in the course of that work, I started noticing People um, in that period, in um, 19th century Central Europe, using a weird metaphor for um, kind of 
managing uncertainty. They were using the metaphor of the intellectual earthquake. Um, you know, this new theory struck us like an earthquake, but they meant it not in the sense that um, new ideas were paralyzing, but that, um, you know, they could come to um, cope with them. And so I started putting that together with some um, accounts of earthquakes, um, literal accounts of earthquakes I was finding in the writings of scientists and wondering about the relationship between that metaphor and um, the actual, you know, how had people been experiencing earthquakes um, in, in this period? Great. Now, the book itself is not only extraordinarily elegantly written, and I mean that sincerely, and there's no hyperbole here. It's really, really a pleasure to read, and it's also very carefully structured. So half the chapters look at local experiments in planetary science, or as you call it, planetary science, during the 19th and early 20th centuries, and this includes Scotland, Switzerland, Imperial Austria, and California. Now, in all of these places, as you demonstrate, networks of ordinary citizens contributed to the emergence of seismology, and we'll talk about that in the course of our conversation. The other half of the chapters look at the circulation of the stories of earthquake witnesses and the ways that they were used in in very different ways and in different contexts as evidence for what became an emerging global science of disaster, as you put it in the book. Because this is such a thoughtful way of structuring the book that really engages some of the major themes that you're talking about as you look at the uh, the ways that local contexts, for example, were woven into a tapestry of larger global issues, the emergence of the earth as a kind of object, and the ways that seismology becomes global. Could you um, spend a minute or two or three or five or however um, much you'd like to talk about this structure? How did you come to decide to structure the book in this way? And in what ways is this important or not to the work that you're trying to do um, in larger terms in the book? That's a really nice question, Carla. I think the structure of the book reflects a tension that became more and more apparent to me in the course of my research, and that's the tension between the expansion of science to a global scale on the one hand, and on the other, the needs of local communities um, and science's responsibility for um, you know, improving the lives of people um, you know, in um, concrete ways. So what I found is that um, seismology as a science of disaster in the 19th century um, was not easy to expand or to internationalize. Um, So the first International Seismological Association was founded in 1900, but those members of the association who wanted to keep seismology as a science of disaster, as a science um, responding to the needs of local communities, were um, at odds with those members of the association who wanted seismology to be a hard science, an exact science, a science of the globe, of the planet, of seisms rather than of disasters. Now, as we work throughout the book, there are some major themes that are going to come up, and these recur throughout the chapters. I just want to lay out a few of them right now because um, I think in the course of our conversation, we'll come back to these. So some major themes that emerge, I think, at least for me as one reader 
are, on the one hand, translation. Um, so you talk in many ways about seismology as a project of translation, and this is going to emerge on various levels. So between scientific and vernacular language, between ordinary and trained observers, translation among languages, there are many ways that this emerges as a theme. We've, I've already briefly mentioned the tension between local or regional and global modes of knowing. There's also a prominent theme of fear and the ways that scientists and communities and uh, sort of local earthquake researchers dealt with fear in communities. And then there's another theme that we'll get to of um, the observers and instruments and observers as instruments and the reliability as it emerges in this context. There's also, I'll just mention for listeners, because there's no way that we're going to get to all of these, um, but I want to just signal that they're there. Throughout the narrative and the, the interwoven narratives of the story, there's some really surprising characters that become central to the emergence of earthquake knowledge, earthquake studies, and earthquake science in different places. And these include Kant, Dickens, Twain, Kafka. There's some really interesting ways that the story becomes um, about a much larger kind of frame of intellectual and social and cultural history and uses the earthquake as an object to explore these much larger landscapes. And so I just wanted to signal that before we get started. Okay, so as we move into the book, after a chapter where you lay out the basic scope of the ways that the human being uh, became used and acknowledged and understood as a kind of observer of earthquakes, we move into the local context of Comrie, Scotland from 1788 to 1897. So to get us started, can you talk a little bit about the context here? Why Comrie and how did you choose this particular case to, to begin the local case studies in the book? Yeah, it it was a surprise to me because I've never even been to Scotland, to my regret. Um, I was fortunate to come upon um, some research by a seismologist at the British Geological Survey at Edinburgh. Um, and the earthquakes that took place in Comrie in the late 18th, early 19th century have actually been of great use to British geologists um, for reconstructing the seismic history of that region because they were observed and recorded um, by um, ordinary people um, in this little village of Comrie, Scotland. So it was actually, you know, a contemporary seismologist who keyed me into this phenomenon. And then when I started um, digging into the newspapers of the time, um, I found it was a very colorful story that was really waiting to be told. Now, one of the really colorful things about this story, um, among many others, and in this uh, chapter, we have Dickens, we have um, some really funny stories about earthquakes, but also you're showing here ways that the evidence for earthquakes and ghosts rose and fell together. So can you talk a little bit in this particular local context about the connections between seismology and psychical research in Britain in this period? Sure. I mean, I think um, what this um, draws our attention to, and it's a theme that Michael Gordon has written about recently um, in the pseudoscience wars, is the fact that there were many fields of inquiry in the 19th century that were not clearly science or gibberish, you know, pseudoscience, um, and that um, they were up for grabs. And 
seismology was actually one of them, as was um, psychic research or spiritualism, right? The study of ghosts. Um, and in a sense, these two ran parallel because they both depended on the observations of lay people, right? Whoever happened to be near the earthquake or near the ghost. <laughs> Now, the observations of lay people become really important in this chapter, especially because um, you're showing here that Comrie's residents become organized into a quake-observing network, and this is something that will follow the developments of in different contexts and in other period or in other times and places afterwards. So, if you were a lay observer of an earthquake in this period in this um, in in the UK, let's say, what kinds of details would you mention in the course of describing your account of the earthquake? Mm. So. Um, in the course of the 19th century, scientists refined the questions that they posed on the questionnaires that they distributed to eyewitnesses um, to the point that um, an early 20th century um, earthquake questionnaire ran to two pages and had multiple um, you know, very detailed multiple choice questions. So really, I mean, the possibilities for observation were infinite. Every single detail was potentially relevant. And, you know, that in and of itself tells us a lot about, you know, um, what science, you know, how high scientists' expectations were of lay people um, before um, the 20th century. Um, so, you know, any um, ordinary people were expected to be able to say to count the seconds of the shaking, right? While they are trying to save themselves, they were expected to take note precisely of the time. Um, they were expected to note the direction of shaking. And this was acknowledged to be quite complex because indoors, um, the, the direction depends on the architecture of the structure. Um, they were um, asked to note changes in, um, you know, the hangings on the wall, if they had been tilted, if the furniture had shifted at all. And um, that kind of observation, interestingly, um, was particularly suited to 19th century women who tended to spend the most time indoors, right, in the home, who knew their furnishings better than anyone else. And so we actually find a lot of these um, felt reports, right, these human observations um, coming from women. And in fact, in later chapters, in the um, chapter about Switzerland in particular, there's an example of a Madame Belperin letter um, to a doctor that really shows the ways in which some of these observations um, here in the case of a woman in particular could actually become quite intimate, which is really striking. Yeah, I was very intrigued by that letter. Um, I still wonder what exactly the relationship was between Madame Belperin and um, the scientist, Professor Chart, to whom she was writing. Um, it seems like it was mostly a case of a kind of fantasized connection between the two rather than anything more tangible. Um, but I think that that's suggestive to us. Um, lay people were eager to be in contact with scientists, and seismology triggered their imaginations. I mean, so uh, Madame Perrin talks about the seismic waves that connect her to Professor Chart in a way that suggests that she's, um, you know, hungry for a connection and that science is a means of connection. 
Now, before the advent, though, of these widespread lay observing networks, um, and the, we'll get to Switzerland in a bit more detail in a moment, you're showing in one of the early chapters that the science of earthquakes really depended on newspapers in various ways for its data. And this chapter three in particular looks at the importance of newspapers to 19th century earthquake research in terms of as an archive, um, first of all, where researchers would call testimony of earthquake witnesses from lay people as a way to, or as a place for posting ads to um, call for observations and also to communicate their research on earthquakes to the public. Now, you mentioned in this chapter that newspaper culture actually shaped or helped form the ways that seismologists made the connection between local stories into planetary ones. Can you talk about that? Because that seems actually to be a really important part of this story. Sure. Um, so one of the interesting features of newspaper culture in the 19th century, um, and this is something that's been studied by Anka Tehazen, among others, um, was the practice of newspaper clipping. And seismologists um, were um, became very good um, collectors of newspaper clippings. So, you know, collecting newspaper clippings was um, a widespread habit. Um, and for seismologists, it was crucial. Um, and what I've found um, in the archives is that these clippings get organized by date rather than by ge geography. So that on a single page, you'll have reports of earthquakes from across the world, um, you know, thanks to the globalization of the press. Um, um, it was possible to receive news from around the world already by, say, the 1860s. Um, and this was very suggestive to seismologists. They started seeing connections between seismic events in different parts of the world and theorizing why that might be the case. And sometimes um, they were able to substantiate those speculations, and sometimes they weren't. But it was certainly... Um, uh, an aid to posing questions about global teleconnections. Now, as we move back to Switzerland um, and back to the um, example in which, or the chapter in which you're mentioning this very sensual letter that we just talked about, we see a context where the Swiss are actually making ordinary citizens a crucial part of earthquake observation. Now, why in this context did the Swiss place so much trust in the observations of ordinary individuals of earthquakes? Right. So my sense is that this reflects um, the ideology of um, Swiss direct democracy, um, Swiss federalism, that um, in the 19th century, the Swiss defined themselves in opposition to their monarchical neighbors um, in terms of the directness um, of political participation in their state. Um, and so, you know, we find Swiss scientists talking about the participation of the public in science in those kind of democratic terms. Great. Now, in this chapter as well, you you talk about the development of something that we're going to see, again, being an important point of contact or point of reference throughout the other chapters of the book and throughout the other contexts that you're looking at in this um, broader history of the emergence of the earthquake as a scientific object in different places and um, in, in this 
overarching period. This is the development of the Rossi-Farrell scale. Now, this is important and really, really interesting on many levels, but um, can you say briefly what is or what was rather the Rossi-Farrell scale and why was it so important to the story that you're telling? So the Rossi-Farrell scale was not the first, but it became the most widely used attempt to quantify human responses to earthquakes um, or the human impact of earthquakes. So it relied both on architectural damage and on human responses like fear um, to measure the intensity of an earthquake. And intensity here is a technical term. Um, so the Rossi-Farrell scale was a, a way, and to come back to the theme of translation that you mentioned, it was a way of translating, actually, um, not just between places and um, observers of different kinds, but even between human observers and instruments. Um, so one of the great quests of 19th century, early 20th century seismology was to um, calibrate instruments against um, human observers to match um, instrumental readings against the intensity measured by the Rossi-Farrell scale. And another way here um, in which translation is actually really important, and correct me if, if I'm wrong, if I, mis- if I misread this, but uh, one of the things about, so an example of this scale, you give here that number in one language, number six equals some frightened people leave their dwellings. And number seven is general panic. But in different languages, for example, perhaps in the Italian language, these descriptions are actually somewhat different. Is that right? Did I read that correctly? That's exactly right. So, um, you know, translated versions of the Rossi-Farrell scale, I mean, so I, should, I should mention first that the scale was originally developed um, jointly by an Italian-speaking and um, a French and German-speaking scientist. So there were issues of translation kind of built in from the start. Um, but what gets kind of distributed as equivalent scales in different languages um, are often um, interestingly, significantly different. And this you know, returns us to the theme that I mentioned at the beginning of the difficulty of globalizing science, um, even a science of the globe. That, um, you know, for instance, there, there are um, many parts of the world in which some of the data um, included in the Rossi-Farrell scale would be totally irrelevant. You know, whether or not a chandelier um, swings back and forth is not a relevant criterion if you're in the middle of Siberia, say. Now, as we move um, later into the book, you tell us in Chapter 5 about the both the advent and then the falling away of seismic tourism. And the, this is related to the importance of, um, in this period, travel accounts, 19th century European travel accounts in particular, as sources for um, seismic observances. And this actually, uh, by the turn of the century, as you're showing, these traveler accounts are replaced by instruments as ways to record distant tremors. Now, what I wanted to um, ask you to talk a little bit about in this... Carla, I've lost the sound. Oh, you've lost the sound. Okay, I'm going to... Now you're back. Okay, am I back now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll keep going, and if we lose the sound again, we'll just, uh, we'll just stop and paste. Okay, so in this chapter, one of the things that emerges as really important is distance. 
And you give um, an example here of Alexander von Humboldt and his efforts to take seriously the, the natives of local environments, especially in the New World, as scientific observers that might contribute to a global science. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to this issue, the, um, the consideration of local native inhabitants of the New World as scientific or as earthquake observers in the context of this emerging um, global science. Right. And this is um, one of the major shifts we see um, in the course of the 19th century. Um, In the early part of the 19th century, scientific explorers like Humboldt are quite interested in the ways in which locals cope with earthquakes and the stories they tell about them, the myths that have grown up around them. Um, And explorers um, like Humboldt treat even those myths as clues, or at least potential clues, to the geohistory of um, the region they're in. Later in um, the century, such myths become the preserve only of anthropologists, lose their geological relevance, and actually it's only in quite recent years um, that Earth scientists have again begun to explore such myths um, for clues to geohistory. Um, so that's a major shift that we see in the 19th century. And you just mentioned the uh, the issue of or the theme of coping with earthquakes, and this actually recurs and leads us to uh, one of the discussions you have in the next chapter. So chapter six, the moment of danger, looks at the ways that earthquakes and other natural disasters actually played significant roles in shaping modern understandings of the human mind, the human psyche, and its uh, its perhaps normal and abnormal states, if we might, um, if we might call it that. You show here a transition from understanding earthquake witnessing in terms of vertigo to understanding it in terms of shock. Could you speak a little bit to that, uh, to the ways that earthquake witnessing was interwoven into understandings of the human psyche in this way, in this period? Right. Um, so, in the Enlightenment, um, reports of vertigo in the wake of possible earthquakes were taken as um, a form of um, physical evidence. Um, it wasn't questioned that an, the experience of vertigo or um, related experiences of, say, seasickness um, could be legitimate evidence that an earthquake had taken place. Um, what happens in by the late 19th century is that um, earthquakes have become classified as one of the possible triggers for the new concept of um, traumatic shock, right? So um, perhaps the central concept of modern psychiatry. And um, this is, I think, something that's overlooked by historians of psychiatry um, because they have tended to focus on um, railway accidents first and then um, the experiences of mechanized warfare in World War I as the quintessential triggers um, for the for shock. Um, but natural disasters were also understood to produce shock. But um, with the introduction of this concept of shock, doubt um, starts to rise about the, um, the evidential value of reports of psychic responses to earthquakes. 
Great. Thank you, Debbie. So as we move further um, further into the story and we see further transformations and ramifications uh, expanding of the transformations that we've already been chronicling, you take us into another context. This is a context in Imperial Austria from 1880 to 1914, where translation again becomes a really central issue. And this is in a really interesting way here. So in this context, you're looking at the problem, among other things, of an entity in which there are lots of different local cultures and local languages or dialects that are making up this one territory. And so you look at the sort of the interweaving here of in imperial science and regional observations in this context. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the problems of translation that emerge in this context. You're actually um, specifically giving us a really interesting case here of an issue of observer reports and vernacular languages. So how were earthquake reports translated within this very culturally and linguistically diverse territory? Right. So my argument in that chapter is that um, scientists in um, the Austrian Empire were particularly sensitive to the challenge of translation because they worked in a multilingual monarchy. Um, they were often themselves speakers of several languages. In order to communicate with the public, they often had to use multiple languages. And I think that this influenced the way they treated um, human observations of earthquakes. So in the U.S. in this period, um, as I show in the next chapters, um, scientists were very eager to replace human observers with instruments to substitute instrumental readings for um, verbal, discursive um, observations. In the Austrian Empire, I think scientists were more hesitant to do that. Um, they, um, their idea of an adequate archive of seismic data was not simply a stack of seismograph readings. It had to be a multilingual archive, human um, and instrumental. And when it came to the human, literally, in um, all of the languages of the empire. Now, um, let's actually, since you uh, just raised it, let's move to California um, for the for the remainder of our conversation here, because there are two chapters here that look at the context of California. One from largely the one focuses largely on a 19th century context, and then the other looks at the early 20th century up to about 1935. Now, you're showing in these two chapters about this context the ways that, um, as you just mentioned, uh, trust of instruments is going to replace trust of local observations. But this is actually a process that happens over time. And one of the really interesting things that happens in the early part of this story is that you're showing cases in which, again, coming back to the issue of trusting and the reliability of local informants, um, native canoemen in the case of um, this one earthquake, 1905, in the Yakutat Bay in, in Alaska, so local canoemen and local prospectors were actually crucial for providing evidence 
for uh, sort of arguing for a new way of understanding the ways that earthquakes actually transformed the landscape. So would you speak a little bit to this early context of sort of 19th and early 20th century um, seismology in California, and then we'll, we'll move to the Richter scale. Sure. Um, so it was um, the belief among settlers in California that earthquakes were not a big problem, right? That um, those um, Americans were destined to settle in California, that they belonged there, and that, you know, no way would earthquakes chase them away. And so, as other historians have shown, um, Carl Henry Geschwind, um, above all, there was um, an immense amount of denialism um, about the earthquake problem in California uh, through the 1930s. Um, so that's kind of the background to this chapter. Great. Now, as we move to um, from this context where you're taking us up to 1905, here we come to a crucial point in the history of earthquake observation, earthquake science in America, and this is the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco. So as we move to the final body chapter of the book, you're taking us to um, or through the history of seismology in California, and California here helps us think through the larger context context in the U.S. from the San Francisco earthquake of 1906 and through the publication of the Richter scale in 1935. And this latter um, development, the Richter scale, is probably something that listeners will have heard of. Um, and this is this has become part of our assumed vocabulary now, right, for thinking about and thinking with earthquakes. Now, this is the early part of this story there are doubts raised about the reliability of human perception in the face of a catastrophe. And this is embedded within responses to the 1906 earthquake. So can you talk about that a little bit as a way of moving us to how we get the Richter scale from this? Sure. Um, and so, I, you know, I think the development there is largely political. Um, at first, um, so in the wake of the Great San Francisco Earthquake of 1906. <laughs> Hold on one sec. Let me... <laughs> I'm sorry. Should I start that answer over? Oh, it's a, just, just keep going. It's, it'll be a little <laughs> musical interlude. <laughs> um, let me just silence it. So, um, you know, remarkably, in the wake of the devastating earthquake and fire of 1906, the seismic denialism does not end in California. Um, but some brave scientists take up the cause of trying to convince the public that there is a real problem. And one of their strategies is to collect seismic observations from the public, um, borrowing the methods of the Swiss and Austrians. Um, However, over the next 20 years or so, many of those scientists become disillusioned with that project. Um, they become frustrated with, um, um, you know, going the public route, and they turn to kind of backstage um, politicking in order to um, push through um, new building requirements, um, safety standards. Um, so... 
in the course of that period, 1906 to 1935, you do have a turn away from the public on the part of California scientists. And the Richter scale is um, an ironic part of that story in the sense that, um, though you would never guess it um, from the way it's used today, the Richter scale was actually developed as a means of um, continuing the use of public observations, um, improving their value to science um, as a means of translating better between human reports and instrumental observations. The problem is that um, the way that the Richter scale came to be used was as a substitute entirely for human observations. So can you talk a little bit more about that? What uh, what does the Richter scale actually measure? And can you talk about the early development um, so that we can understand the ironies of how it originally or how it eventually came to be used? So the Richter scale um, measures um, uh, is a standard measure of the energy of the earthquake um, based on uh, you know standard seismographs. Um, it's what it does not measure is that variable of intensity that we were talking about before um, in terms of the Rossi-Farrell scale, right? So intensity is the measure of the human impact of an earthquake, right, in terms of building damage and human um, responses. Um, the Richter magnitude is a strictly instrumental measure, and in that sense, it doesn't tell you about the damage that the earthquake did. Um, if you put the Richter magnitude together with the Rossi-Farrell intensity, you learn a lot more. Namely, you learn um, how much damage the earthquake should have done, um, it, how much it could have been expected to do, and then how much it really did do. And often what that shows you is that construction was not up to safety standards, right? If the intensity was much higher than one would expect given the Richter magnitude. And you're showing in this chapter in your discussion of this that the scale was ultimately not about producing an absolute measure or universal standard of an earthquake, which is part of the irony because I think that's how a lot of people understand, um, a lot of sort of popular at least understanding of the Richter, sta- Richter scale exists now. Instead, it was about public communication, right? Exactly. Um, The idea behind it came from um, a fabulous scientist named Harry Wood, who um, was on a quest throughout his career to um, impress on the public the danger of California earthquakes and to um, make the um, the reporting of um, of you know um, locals' experiences of earthquakes widespread. and, you know, the, the tragic story, though, is that Harry Wood had a debilitating disease, um, which he contracted in the 30s, and he kind of gave this project of developing a magnitude scale to um, this young physicist, um, Richter. And um, by the time that Richter actually, came, you know, figured out um, a scale, Wood was out of commission. And... Um, you know, Richter was the next generation, and he was not interested in perpetuating the observing networks that Wood had set up. Now, one of the things that emerges in this chapter echoes 
issues that come up in previous chapters, and this is something that again comes up in the conclusion. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about it. We've been talking about human observation and human um, observers of earthquakes, but there's also another way of talking about what happens in the context of this chapter in early 20th century California, and that's in terms of citizen science. Now, you talk about um, citizen science as it emerges in this particular context and also links up with stories that are now coming out of the history of science in, in other global contexts as well. So could you talk for a bit about this issue? How, um, how might we understand this particular context in terms of citizen science, and what does the idea of citizen science add to the way we understand this story? So I think there's a real question of, um, you know, what is the idea of citizen science today? Um, and I think that's debatable. I mean, a lot of citizen science programs, including the one run by the United States Geological Survey to collect earthquake observations, um, which is on their website, Did You Feel It? Um, a lot of these programs say that they're interested in um, in um, calling new evidence and in training the public as scientists, you know, you know as um, at least scientific assistants. Um, but if you look at kind of the messages about these programs um, that, you know, are, so at how these programs are talked about just within the expert communities, the impression I get is that this is all a lot of PR, right? Um, that this is a way for the USGS to um, impress on the public the importance of the work it's doing. Um, and, you know, I think there are a lot of other examples like that. There's a real question, um, above all, of whether the um, the avenues of communication that citizen science today opens up, whether they're really two-way streets as claimed, um, whether um, scientists are really in dialogue with the public at all, or whether they're just um, packaging um, their research in a kind of palatable way to, um, you know, uh, win public support. Thank you. Now, Debbie, as we come to the close of our um, conversation, before we wrap up, um, I wanted to just ask you to situate this story in broader terms, if you could, in a couple of ways. So throughout the book, uh, in, in various chapters, you mention the distinctions between what's happening in local and global developments of earthquake science versus other kinds of science um, or sort of modes of knowledge that also might engage these persistent and pervasive themes that we see engaged in the book. Themes of uh, lay observation, themes of collective observation, um, translation among different instruments and modes of knowing. How does the story that you're telling about earthquake science fit into a larger story, if at all, about disaster science in this period? What makes this story special? And perhaps is there a larger story of fear and disaster in science to be told? Or do you think this is something that's best understood in terms of local um, stories like this one? So I suspect that there are similar stories to be told 
about other scientific disciplines. And the ones that have come to my mind are climatology and epidemiology. Um, so it seems to me that, um, like climatology, those sciences were um, based on human reports um, for the most part in the 18th, early 19th centuries, and that as they became more and more observatory sciences or laboratory sciences, they fell out of touch um, with the human data and fell out of touch with the project of um, serving victims, right, of um, actually being disaster sciences rather than um, abstract sciences. So I'm interested, you know, in, in thinking more about those parallels and talking to colleagues um, about, you know, where they see, see the similarities and differences in the developments of those disciplines. Great. Thank you. And one other final sort of big picture question before we bring this um, to a close. You, one of your chapters mentions explicitly, and other chapters engage um, in, in different ways and to different degrees, the significance of the story that you're telling about the history of earthquake science within perhaps a broader field of the human sciences. So we talked a little bit about ways that understanding earthquakes and earthquake observations was linked into stories about vertigo, about shock, and ultimately about hysteria. You also mention um, sort of other, you know, inklings of this story in various points in the book. Is there a story to be told about is there a parallel story to be told about changing concepts of the human in the sciences that might map onto this, or, or what are your reflections on that? That's really interesting, changing concepts of the human. And so um, my thinking about the human sciences in relation to earthquakes um, has mostly focused on um, the the avoidance of earthquakes. Um, so I was interested in the way that um, early psychoanalysis interpreted the fear of earthquakes as, of course, really a sexual phobia. Um, and I think that um, we see that as a broader trend in the human sciences to reinterpret anxieties about the natural environment as something else, whether sexual or political. Um, I see an avoidance of the natural environment in the 20th century human sciences. And this is really quite speculative. Um, it's a question that I would like to pursue um, in further research. But I think it's one that um, hasn't quite been asked. I think there's a certain distance, say, between the fields of environmental history and um, the history of the human sciences that might need to be bridged um, with future research. Well, Debbie, thank you so much for making the time. It's such a rich book, and there is a ton of material that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular um, or anything in general about the book that we didn't have a chance to mention but that you'd like to point out, and perhaps especially for readers who haven't, or for listeners, rather, who haven't yet had an opportunity to read the book? I don't know. I think um, one of the surprises to me was the discovery that um, – there was a genre in the 19th century of earthquake humor. Right. That newspapers were full of jokes about these minor earthquakes, you know, in the local town they happened to be reporting on. Um, so that's, you know, a genre that we've lost for sure, for better or worse. Um, but it was one that was fun to, 
rediscover. And so for listeners who are interested in this particular part of the story, look to chapter three, News of the Apocalypse. And there's a, just a wonderful set of accounts of earthquakes in the comics and a description, uh, surprisingly, at least for me, I had no idea um, he wrote about this, but Mark Twain as perhaps the first master of earthquake humor. So that's a great part of the book. So Debbie, now that this book is out and congratulations um, on, as I've said, a, a really wonderfully written and organized book that gave me uh, a lot to think about. What's next for you? What project is currently inspiring you? You know, so I mentioned that I'm curious um, to pursue the parallels with climatology, and that's actually the next project. Um, I'm looking at the development of concepts of scale in the atmospheric sciences um, and how they came out of the context of the Habsburg monarchy, so the subject of my Chapter 7. Great. Well, Debbie, best of luck in the next project um, and with your current research, and thanks again for making the time. Thanks so much to you, Carla. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks for joining us. 